0: Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. We see
1: the syphilitic shrinking obelisk, the white.
0: Smiling lie of the televised Hi, this is Mark Arnold and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 46. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Hi, I'm George Takei. You know me as
1: Helmsman Sulu on Star Trek. When I'm not busy going Warp Factor 8, I like to beam down to Lee's Comics in Mountain View and spend a lazy afternoon reading comics classics from Marvel to DC, from Dark Horse to Fantagraphics, and everything in between. So please, spend some time here at Lee's Comics and spend your hard-earned cash. <coughs>
0: <laughs> the Fun Ideas Podcast is made possible by listeners like you and from Lee's Comics of California, selling you what your mother threw out since 1982 online at leescomics.com. I'm still working on my own Light Up Your Life travel agency. ...plus the Warren Kramer book, the TTV Underdog book, the Monkey Solo book, and the Mad book... ...plus all the articles I've discussed last episode, so I really have nothing new to report this week. Our guest today co-created his own comic book series of Captain Carrot and the Amazing Zoo Crew... ...worked for Hanna-Barbera, Rhino Records... Ogilvy and Mather, was the original artist on Sonic the Hedgehog for Archie Comics, designed cartoon statues for McFarlane, and drew the covers for both of my Monkeys books, among many, many other projects. Here he is, Scott Shaw. Okay, on the phone today we have Scott Shaw, and he is doing inking as we talk. Um, How are you, Scott? I'm fine, thanks, Mark. How oh, are you good and as you know I always ask uh, to start off any interviews tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested into cartooning
1: well i uh, I'm a cartoonist meaning that I write and draw uh, funny stuff and that's all I do is funny stuff i I have done some superhero stuff but they've been funny superheroes so that's as close as I ever got to any kind of legitimacy, I suppose. <laughs> but, uh, I've worked in comic books, uh, animated cartoons for TV, um, direct-to-video cartoons, uh, lots of animated commercials. I've designed toys. And, uh, now I'm doing children's books and, uh, actually writing a book about comic books. Cool. Uh, I've been doing this for, I don't know, uh, Forty-seven years, I think.
2: Oh
1: wow! <laughs> uh, finally figuring it out. I uh, I've been a very lucky, guy. I've been able to work with uh, a lot of my the guys that I admired most when I was a kid. Become friends with them, and uh, I think cartooning may be the only profession left where that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and in entertainment at least. Right. Uh, so you know, I mean, it's. I've done a lot of stuff And I've done it because I love it And I got into it like most cartoonists When I was a kid Probably by the time I was four years old I knew I wanted to be either a cartoonist
2: Or a paleontologist (laughs) And
1: uh, uh, Then the Flintstones came out in 1960 And I was nine years old And it was kind of like well that solves everything I remember telling myself That's what I'm going to do (laughs) <laughs> leaning forward to the TV set, the first night it aired, and I wound up. I've worked on the Flintstones on and off during my whole career. I actually worked on a Flintstones project just a couple of years ago. <laughs> and, you know, I'm they're t- always talking about trying to bring them back, so I may be working on a new one any day.
2: Right. <laughs> uh,
1: but the uh, you know the like most cartoonists, it seems like you know that's what you want to do when you're a kid. And at a certain point, I think I was in junior high. I was still kind of thinking about paleontology because everybody was acting like, "Well, cartooning, nobody can do that for a living." And when a teacher of mine told me that uh, most paleontologists do not get a job with a museum or go out as explorers and finding new fossils, they wind up getting hired by oil companies to find, you know, deposits of fossil plants that, that have been turned into into gasoline wow. or, or raw, raw oil I should say not gasoline <laughs> but anyway but anyway you know it, it would be a horrible application of the stuff I love so I, I decided to stick with cartooning and uh, I get to draw dinosaurs a lot so that's what I just
0: now had you become a paleontologist what would you have wanted to do if you could have your own way about it
1: oh I would have liked to have been, a, been like a, a director at a museum oh okay yeah Roy Chapman Andrews was my hero and apparently a lot of other people too he was one of the bassists for uh, Indiana Jones Mm -hmm. he was the the, uh, director of the uh, main curator of the uh, New York uh, Museum of Natural History Mm -hmm. and uh, got lots of publicity wrote children's books about paleontology and being explored wrote books for adults and apparently, within his field, was considered kind of like the Stan Lee of paleontology, <laughs> particularly well liked by other people in the business because they felt he was constantly promoting himself. But the kids my age, he was like he was like the poster boy for yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to be Roy <laughs> Chapman in <the> hundreds.
0: Wow. <laughs> now. I didn't know this and this kind of relates because you mentioned New York I didn't know you were born in New York City for some reason I always thought you were born in San Diego so how long did you live in New York?
1: Only only a few years my dad was in the Navy
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I was born in the Navy Hospital in Queens uh. but my dad had been in the Navy he was a he was a farm boy who joined the Navy in uh <laughs> in 1941 <laughs> and uh went through um, boot camp in San Diego and then was shipped out to Pearl Harbor Oh wow! and uh, the ship that he was uh, assigned to was capsized during the attack and uh, he was thrown overboard but fortunately wasn't injured badly real badly uh, so he wound up uh, being in the Navy for, for many many years but he had wanted to be a cartoonist himself
2: Oh. or at least an artist a graphic artist
1: probably a sign painter more than anything at least that was the thing that he thought <laughs> to do but once he was made an officer in the Navy after the after Pearl Harbor attack he was uh, he never really looked back other than passing a lot of the stuff on that he was interested in to me that way
2: mm-hmm.
1: but anyway he, uh, he had always said that he wanted to live in San Diego so I was born in 1951 when he was, he and my mom were living on Long Island he was the uh, aide to an admiral so uh, he, he, they, I think I was two and a half years old when they moved to San Diego
0: oh ok and then um, you said he wanted to be a cartoonist did he do like some other uh, cartoonists like Hank Ketchum that were in the Navy and Frank Hill that they actually did cartoons while in the Navy or was it just a private dream that he had
1: just a private dream. In fact, it was so private, he never told me that while he was alive. I found out that he had goals to be a professional artist uh, at his funeral when oh, wow. high school showed up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He never told me anything, but he showed me how to use uh, speedball pens when I was a boy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was really, he really was into lettering.
2: Uh-huh. But he,
1: he taught me how to draw all sorts of things. In fact, I've got a little book, a little school book that I found that that was his. That the first few pages are full of drawings of farm animals, and then he runs out of space and he, or ideas, and he, he then he just resorts. He has a monkey, an ape. These are labeled monkey, ape, gorilla, and then Mickey Mouse. So, <laughs>
0: Kind of like me in that respect. It was like, after he got off the farm. He liked the same stuff as me. <laughs> that's a, that's really interesting and weird. You know that he wouldn't have uh, connected with you while he was still around. You know that way.
1: I, I, I think I think my dad was a very uh, soft-spoken guy, and he didn't want to sound like some a-hole trying to say, oh, I was a big shot, I wanted to be a cartoonist too, because I was already, I mean, by the time I was five, Dr. Seuss was my hero, I wanted to be Dr. Seuss. <laughs> and then and then the, the Jay Ward and Hanna-Barbera stuff came along, and then Big Daddy Roth, and then, you know, it was like one hero after another, you know, Jack <laughs> Kirby. So, you know, I, I always wished my dad could have met Jack Kirby and they could have hung out, because they were both born the same year
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they were both, you know, and saw a lot of uh, bad action during the war, but, but Kirby was in the European theater and my dad was all over the Pacific. Hmm. So I, I would have always been, because my dad hated talking about the war and Jack kind of liked talking about it only because he was a storyteller so he he kind of made made the stories much, much more exciting probably than reality really was. Right. But, uh... uh <laughs> I, I always would have been interesting to see how the two of them would have interacted because they were both from very poor families, but but Jack was from an urban uh, you know environment. My dad was from a farm. Hmm.
0: hmm. Interesting. Um, when did your dad pass away? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> um. In. Uh, uh, 1986. Oh, okay. So you were already established as a cartoonist. That's right. Uh,
1: he was very pleased. He once, I one time, he didn't know I overheard him, but we went out to dinner with, I guess, a couple of my parents' friends, and I overheard him tell one of his buddies, he
0: says, My kid makes more in a month than I ever made in a week. <laughs> Now one thing I know about that uh, you've uh, mentioned many times like on Facebook and stuff like that so it seems like they were encouraging the artist in you is you have that Fred Flintstone lakeside drawing electric drawing kit Oh yeah that was now, Was that a request by you or did they just give oh, it to no, you or how did that
1: Everything was a demand by me, me. <laughs> I, was, I was the only child um, My parents uh, had been they were a little older than most parents at that time. Um, they were in their mid-30s, which was kind of unusual.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I Nobody ever confirmed for me, but I have a feeling there were some conception issues. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of the golden boy. Mm-hmm. On top of that, um, in the 1950s, they were doing a lot of testing on school kids. And I, I, they, first of all, they skipped me a grade. They skipped me from the fourth grade right to the fifth grade. Wow. And it turns out that I was in the very first group of kids in something called the GATE program, G T E which stood for
2: Gifted and Talented Education. Mm. And this
1: essentially was a program where the, uh, the kids like myself that had qualified for this we didn't ask to be in it, we were just put in it Yep. would be in the same classes from 5th grade all the way through 12th grade
2: Hmm.
1: and we were all much more supposedly gifted which is a word I learned to hate (laughs) more 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 have more interest or passion for certain things but they never told us this but the real goal was to guide us all into science and math so we would become scientists to kill the communists. Ooh! Wow! And I have friends that, that became teachers who've confirmed that that was the goal of this whole program. Wow! But for that reason, my parents were told, "Your son can do anything he puts his mind to," which again was like a curse. But still, <laughs> for that reason, you know, when I was, you know, for example, they had me taking uh, violin lessons.
2: Mm. And I wasn't interested in music At least not in that way
1: And I had to talk them Out of The violin lessons Because For about two months Before it actually happened uh, There'd been lots of advertising About this new cartoon show On Friday night Called The Flintstones Hmm. I was already a fan of All the Hanna-Barbera cartoons Rough and Ready And and Huckleberry Hound Show And Yogi Bear Quick Draw McGraw And uh, you know, it was like, holy crap, I'd seen some photos, and it was like dinosaurs, and the main character looked like my dad.
2: <laughs> it was, like,
1: it was like, this my favorite. I mean, how many nine-year-olds even have a favorite cartoon studio? But, you know, cartoonist obsessive from the word go, I think. <laughs> anyway, I had to do a two-month campaign to talk my parents out of having me have that Music lesson the same night as the Flintstones premiering, and finally they just gave in. And you know, I never let go of that my entire life as long as they were alive. Like, aren't you glad that you let me do that? But from that point on, it was like it was like it combined the two things I liked the most. That, or you know, it was like a double obsession. uh, You know, gratified. So the first stuff that you get would all be. Uh, print stuff because that was the easiest stuff to have made you know when you have toys you have to you have to book time overseas now more than back then but still it's more complicated getting a toy made Mm -hmm. but if it's a print thing you can and and in the case of Western Publishing they had people that worked on the show doing the coloring books and simple stuff like that, that was the first thing that came out, and then there would be more complicated stuff you know, sticker books, and then the toys started hitting around 1961 or so, and being an only child, you know, I didn't have any siblings, and my parents you know, weren't, weren't wealthy, but my dad had a steady, you know, decent pay being an officer in the Navy mm-hmm. so I was very lucky I got a lot of that stuff right, you know it, they, they fed my obsession <laughs> I also got a lot of comic books from the time. I mean, probably two years old. I was asking for comic books,
2: mm-hmm. and I asked
1: my mom before she died. I said, "I said that was like right in the fury of of, of you know comic burning and Frederick. <laughs> and yet, you were buying me comic books. I remember, my when I turned I turned around five. Like most kids my age, I had to go into the hospital for
2: uh, my tonsils mm-hmm. to be removed and I've talked to enough people my
1: age online that that seems to be where it was really cemented that comic books were our special buddy because, you know, especially being an only child, you go into a hospital and suddenly you're there by yourself Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's nobody you know, you're not quite socialized yet because you're still pretty young Mm -hmm. and there's kids from all backgrounds and all neighborhoods and you're kind of like wow, I don't, you know, how am I going to what do I say to this person? But I'll never forget, my dad brought what seemed to be, you know, a three foot tall pile of comic
0: books. Well, it probably was more like three inches,
1: but still, it was the most comics I ever remember getting. a,
2: it's one still a lot, yeah.
1: <laughs> and I remember specific comics that were even in that pile. That's, that's how much of an impression it made on me. So, in in fact, I made a point to try to collect some of those because uh, were
0: were they all current issues off the stands, or is it just? Oh yeah. Old? Oh yeah. okay. Okay.
1: Yeah, it was mostly funny stuff. I remember the first superhero comic I ever saw was in there, a Superboy. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it was mostly stuff that I liked: Tom Terrific, um, Scrooge, Dennis the Menace, stuff like that. You know, the good the good kid stuff.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you and I are the same way it's like we like the superheroes but the real gold is you know that other stuff <laughs> well,
1: you know I like superheroes a lot too but yeah. the problem is is
2: that it's all it's all become the same thing yeah But but, but when guys were drawing
1: superheroes That were cartoonists And that's how Jack Kirby thought of himself As a cartoonist Mm -hmm. That had styles that weren't even trying to look real That's when I liked superheroes Mm -hmm.
0: And I assume Kirby's your favorite artist Since you named your son Kirby And things like that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: but he's a a pretty Well, that's too because I was friends with him, but my other favorite who's just as big an influence is Gilbert Shelton,
1: the guy that created Wonder Warthog and oh, yeah. Freak Brothers. And, yeah. you know, his stuff is probably more obvious because it's, it's, it's cartoony and funny, but Jack's storytelling really, really left a mark on me in terms of how to break down a story. Mm-hmm. And of course, when I was doing Captain
0: Carrot, it really, it really filled in because then I could actually imitate Jack's style to a certain degree. Right. That is actually an interesting point. Is like Captain Carrot is kind of a hybrid of Kirby and Wonder War <laughs> It's Weird. Well,
1: that was, that was actually the point when Roy Thomas and I created it. it was what if we uh, the way we sold it was what if Jack Kirby drew Mighty Mouse?
0: Oh, <laughs> I never knew that. You know, <laughs> I mean, I knew the Kirby influence. I didn't know that was and the
1: original pitch was going to be. For uh, the just a just a
2: lot of animals to take off on the Justice League of America, mm-hmm. and um, it's all buried in storage now. I wish I
1: could find them, but the uh, the pages, the sample pages I did, they were being attacked by a giant carrot from outer space who looked like Galactus.
0: <laughs> <laughs> of course, if you... never,
1: we never used that for Captain Carrot. We did a character called Bunny from Beyond that was kind of like that, but. Um, you know, I like superheroes a lot, but the problem is, you know, we... You know, I think it was last year, two years ago, they did a new Plastic Man comic, and my, a friend of mine was writing it, and she writes really funny stuff, and I thought, boy, this is going to be great, and I picked it up, and it was depressing as everything else that comes out of the comic. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey, we, we, let's make a depressing... Plastic Man. Nobody's done
0: that yet. <laughs> <laughs> I have noticed that on comic books nowadays. It's like I read very few new ones because yeah, there's an overall kind of depression, and I don't know if it's because sales are down and other things, but it's not now, as lighthearted as when we were kids.
1: <laughs> no, it's because they're 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 competing with other entertainment. Yeah, you know, they're competing with. Robbing a bank isn't a big deal anymore. Even destroying the universe isn't a big
0: deal anymore. <laughs> but if it looks like something out of criminal
1: minds, then it's something that's relatable. Right. I mean, and you know, it's like it's like I sound like an old man about. Well, I am an old man, but, <laughs> but it, it, it really disturbs me that they feel like they have to keep
0: upping the the, the stakes rather than saying let's up the quality. Right. You know, <coughs> the idea that 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 they keep trying to get more extreme, as they used to say in the '90s, right.
2: they've they left no place to, for them to go now. You know, the last big, the last biggest news in Batman was we all got to see
1: Batman's penis. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, it's like, well, what? And, and then they pretended they didn't know it went through the system. I got to tell you. When a comic book gets published, especially one in a new format like that, it's scrutinized by 800 different people. They saw it, it and they loved it. They knew they were going to get a lot of news out of
0: it. Yeah, yeah.
1: And that's how comics operate now. Marketing has taken over the world of comics, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't really matter what they're publishing. They'll figure out some way to sell it to somebody.
0: Right, right. (laughs) Um let's see what other things i was going to ask you about um (laughs) let's see let me ask you about uh how you got into comics in the first place i mean i I guess you've been asked that before but i mean were you trying to work for the majors or were you trying to do underground or was it just anything that came along when you were getting into comic books
1: i uh I I was just pretty much trying to get in anything that came along, but quite honestly I loved underground comics. That was like the last time I was really excited about comics. (laughs) because A couple of years before that you know, I I went to high school with, with, I was very lucky because of this gate program. I was in classes with a lot of other nerds, so by the time I was in high school, I was you know, buddies with three or four of the guys that with myself helped come up with Comic-Con mm-hmm. so uh, you know we were all pretty serious about about comics and science fiction and horror movies and all that stuff you know back then there wasn't so much coming out you could afford to be a fan of all of it at once right. and, uh, but, but, but one of them was Greg Bear. he wound up becoming a well-known science fiction author uh, John Pound became a well-known illustrator and fine artist um Roger Friedman became a physicist and an author. Uh, you know, I mean it's like we, we all wound up kind of in different areas, but we were all still fanboy nerds. And um um where was I going with this?
0: Well you're uh, talking about forming which is a question I had, forming the San Diego Comic Con or what became that. I mean how did that how did that happen? I mean, you don't just suddenly say, Hey, let's do a convention, how did that uh, happen? <laughs> I just remember the point I I will address that but I just the point I was about to make was about underground comics Mm. is
1: that we were all talking about because we were reading Marvel and DC and you know me funny stuff too but we were all we were all I don't know know, 14, 15 and we were all saying you know why are comics just about specific genres you Mm. know the westerns and war stuff was still around romance stuff was still around the Archie type stuff but there wasn't anything about you know like like documentary comics there weren't any things about you know somebody just writing and drawing something from their own point of view about their life or you know something that <laughs> wasn't fit any of the genres
2: mm-hmm.
1: and when underground comics came out it was like we had never seen anything but fanzines right and you know it was and, and fanzines was just more of the same oh here's conan with a with a with a sexy woman except now we don't have to have her with a with a chainmail top on. She can be topless in this fantasy. <laughs> you know, like, well, that's great, but... But let's see something other than a barbarian for a change, you know. <laughs> right. So it was—it wasn't anything that exciting. I think the biggest deal before underground comics, I actually asked my parents for Christmas
0: to buy me a bunch of issues of Wits End magazine. Oh wow! Which was a fanzine that Wally Wood
1: put together, but it was all by pro cartoonists,
0: hmm.
1: and that had some nudity in it. And they kind of freaked out, not knowing I was already hiding Playboys in the. <laughs> Find <laughs> underneath my, my shirts mm-hmm. but um, the undergrounds just blew my mind and especially because the first one I bought I was in La Jolla my first week in college and I would go to a sandal shop and they've got an issue with the free, the first Freak Brothers uh-huh. in a comic called Feds and Heads mm-hmm. and I'd already been buying gilbert shelton stuff since junior high because help magazine was reprinting wonder warthog and then drag cartoons had new wonder warthog stuff and he was already one of my favorite cartoonists so now just about as i'm becoming a hippie suddenly i see gilbert shelton is doing a comic book about what's essentially the marx brothers as hippies (laughs) and it was it was like i gotta have more of this and then i got zap comics and then suddenly there was this whole wave of it and i wasn't old enough to be drawing them quite yet but i certainly was old enough to be buying them and really digging them yeah and i bought every one i could find and i still have every one i ever bought later. oh wow <laughs> uh, i didn't i'd buy extras if i wanted to leave it around on the uh you know in in the, in the house i had with my other slovenly you know roommates who you know we'd we'd have the requisite table made out of an old uh, telephone cable uh, spool, and there would be a a candle in a wine bottle and a bong spilled on the table, and then some (laughs) underground comics. So you kind of figured those those were just going to get destroyed. But anyway, the undergrounds, you look at them now, um, and like everything else, it's only about 10% of them are any good.
2: But it was—it was just, you know, it, the,
1: my funniest story about underground comics relates to Jack Kirby because he knew I liked him and why I was asking him about him, and he told me how much he liked him, and I thought that meant that he liked reading underground comics <laughs> and the, all the X-rated material within. Mm. And it turned out that Jack meant that he liked the fact that there was no house style and that everybody owned their own material
0: right so I that completely
1: missed my brain <laughs> um, I drew this very pornographic poster in honor of Jack and a friend of mine printed up a thousand of them and I gave one to Jack and Jack turned pale very pale and said I, I'm sorry but I have a family I can't have this poster <laughs> it's, a, it's a long story but, but Jack was very cool about it they didn't call the police or anything
0: yeah um, so it seems it seems like he more appreciated the freedom than the actual oh, pornography or anything of it <laughs> yeah
1: but he knew I was doing underground comics by yeah. that time and I think he 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 was the nicest guy because you know he hadn't been a
2: an angel when he was a kid he was in a street gang and right. you know I mean he, he grew up as a
1: Jack was a tough guy I mean not not tough. To other his, his other people, but he, he could take a lot, and he probably had to dish out a lot at one time or another as a kid. Right. So I think he knew, remembered what it was like to be kind of a a, a young callow youth.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, so he never came after me. In fact, before
1: this happened, even it was I think at the first. No, no. By this time, it probably had happened, but it was at the. Uh, first comic-con that was at the el cortez hotel Mm -hmm. and my friend terry stroud had brought a huge roman candle and the way that the el cortez was constructed there were built there it kind of surrounded the pool the pool was in the middle of it and so there were there were rooms going high up on on two sides and really high up on the third side, hmm. and we were down by the pool. And Terry pulls out this this uh, firework,
2: and we're going <laughs> to set it off. And Jack walks by, and Terry yells out, "Hey, Jack, you want to light this thing?" And Jack starts walking over, and he goes, I'll "Never forget, Terry." Goes,
1: "It's the boom tube, Jack." You know, for his new world, his fourth, fourth world, new god stuff, and Jack just for a second, he comes over and he, and I remember really, he had this look in his eye like, yeah, that'd be fun. And then he says, ah, boys, I don't think I've then he suddenly, because he's looking around, he's realizing I could set fire to the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and so he walked away and we set it off anyway. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't set fire to the hotel, but it certainly could have.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: That was the same pool we also threw uh, shark repellent in
0: one year. Oh, boy. I've heard about that.
1: <laughs> no shark attacks. But that, but that takes us kind of there to Comic-Con, so see how I did that?
0: Good segue. <laughs> so what do you want to know about Comic-Con? Well, I mean, how did you come up with it? Was it your idea, or did you just go along for the ride just saying, hey, I'll show up if you make it to Comic-Con? Or...
1: Kind of... Kind of uh,
0: most of the second and a little of the first. Okay. Um, what happened was that we had our whole group
1: of cartoonists and writers and you know fanboys at, at Crawford High in San Diego, and uh, then we all graduated, and I was, or at least some of us did. Some of us are still there, and I um, went to a school called Cal Western, which is out on Point Loma, and it was near a little beach community called Ocean. Ocean Beach Which was You know Just a Haven for hippies And counterculture types and, <laughs> and weirdos And One of the weirdos Had a bookstore On the main drag In Ocean Beach That was uh, You know It was science fiction In the front And pornography In the back <laughs> And that's Not unusual In the history Of uh, uh, bookstores uh, right. Because the fellow That owned it Was a guy named Ken Kruger mm-hmm. Who had been to the very first world science fiction Conve- or very first convention ever for science fiction in 1939 I believe in New York City and so he had been a publisher he'd been a book dealer he'd been a fan he'd had something like I don't know 14 bookstores over the years he was a smart guy because he knew how to keep ahead of the cops um, and yet he was a real legitimate guy he wasn't scummy he wasn't he just knew that unfortunately the reality of it was if you're going to have a privately owned book used bookstore pornography is going to keep the rest of it alive Right. and in those days you know it was not that unusual in fact um there was a really great bookstore in San Diego called the Controversial Bookstore. <laughs> and I'd, I'd buy underground comics there. I'd buy books on drugs there. I'd get all the stuff my parents wouldn't be allowed to
2: see. <laughs>
1: and, uh, I once asked um, uh, the fellow that created um, the book, "The About
0: the, uh, the Skeptic," um, Kreskin. Oh, Paul Krasner. Oh, that guy. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and. Um, I told him about that's so where
1: I used to buy his magazine, and he said, uh, "Did they have a beaded beaded curtain in, in there?" And I said, "Yeah, I guess they did." Why well, he goes, "Did you ever go in there?" I said, "No, I didn't." And He goes, "Well, that's," he says, "How old were I?" said, "I don't know, fifteen, 16. He says, "Well, you probably would have liked it. That was full of nudie magazine, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and specifically sunbathing nudie magazines." <laughs> Said that in, in bookstores, that controversial was the code name for we have nude magazines, mm. which I never knew mm-hmm. because when I went there, it was like, well, of course this stuff is controversial. It's All the stuff we're not allowed to talk about, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. It wasn't sex. It was political more than anything.
0: Right. So
1: anyway, Ken. Um, uh, was very nice guy there was nothing creepy about him at all and he said you know what if you boys want to i told my friends about it they started coming down there pretty soon he said if you guys want to create a fan club this is where you can have it and so we created a group called the profanists (laughs)
2: because
1: it was a couple of guys that were pros a couple of guys are mostly of us for fans and then we became known as the Junior Woodchucks After, <laughs> you, know, you know, the, the uh,
2: oh, Donald's oh. Netflix, uh, yeah. Boy Scout type troop.
1: And, uh, so Meanwhile, I have got a job at a bookstore in Fashion Valley A very legitimate, brand new uh, Bookstore, Beat Alton Bookseller You might remember the yeah. chain They yeah. were all, they were owned by uh,
2: a company that also owned the Target stores
1: mm. And, um it was in this very posh I.N. mall. And so I got a job there and it was a great job. I worked as a bookseller. And uh, a fella came in and he was looking for these these books that were reprinting the Prince Valiant uh, comic strips, but in the form of children's books.
2: Mm.
1: And I I knew about him because I'd already bought some of them out of the store myself. And it turned out, we, we started talking because I was Thought, well that's kind of interesting that you even knew about these and he was a fan named Bob Sork mm. and he said, uh, says you might like coming we, we have a fan club uh, that meets over in Claremont uh, Mesa and you might want to come to it I said yeah, I sure would so I went over there and it was uh, himself and Richard Alf and Mike Towery and uh, Sheldorf and a number of other younger kids um, in fact they were all younger than me but uh <laughs> shell was kind of the uh the guy that seemed to be the primary guy doing it and uh he had he had moved from detroit where he was involved with a convention called the detroit detroit triple fan fair oh okay um and uh when i went there he was showing slides of golden age comics i don't know where he got them and uh but anyway um so I brought some of my friends, and, uh, by, oh, by the way, by that time, in 1968, my friends, some of my friends from high school,
2: we had attended the World Science Fiction Convention in Berkeley in 1968. Oh, okay. Which was like an incredible eye-opener
1: in a number of ways, as you can imagine, because hmm. you know, not only we go to our first convention, but... Uh, you know it was it was also permeated by the counterculture <laughs> and so it was just unbelievable we we, we had no you know life changing experiences other than just seeing all the stuff around us and we were these absolutely
2: innocent kids who remained innocent for a while but <laughs> not for long <laughs> cuz we went there the summer of
0: 68 and then and then and then the winter, the, the the fall of '68, I went to college. Oh, yep. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah.
1: So anyway, the the two groups. It was interesting because most of the people that were involved in the one that Shell had assembled all were collectors, and that's or dealers, and that's pretty much what they were all about. And all the people from the group of my friends, we were collectors. But we were more interested in becoming creators, hmm. and um, so we started talking about maybe having a convention because Shell was talking about the one that he was involved in, and we were talking about the ones that we had attended. Mm-hmm. And uh, that led to the Comic Con, the first Comic
0: Con. Now, was there talk at the time of bringing actual creators, or was that an afterthought?
1: Oh no, no We wanted to have We we got the very first one We got the ones we could We got Mike Royer Mm -hmm. Who was just starting to be an assistant to Russ Manning We got uh, Forry Ackerman And we got a guy named Bob
2: Stevens Who was a local editorial cartoonist For one of those San Diego papers Mm -hmm. So We got a guy from, from Comic Strips we got a guy that, that knew all about monster stuff, and we got a guy
1: that, <laughs> a local guy that actually worked for the paper drawing editorial cartoons. Mm-hmm. In my mind, that's a pretty good lineup for a first convention because yeah. it's all different things.
0: Now, was it hard to track these people down? Because it's not like nowadays where it's the internet and everything. I mean, you're breaking up. Oh, um, was it hard to track these people down? I mean, to find them?
1: Well, well um, Shell seemed to have A lot of contacts Um I'm not sure He probably We knew Forry Ackerman Because a lot of us Had been to Forry's house We had Forry's phone number I still remember His phone number If you If you spelled it out On the old Rotary phone It was Moon fan
0: I don't think it works now and Forey's dead, so don't try it yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, it'd be weird if he answered, yes <laughs> we've been to his house a number of times and that's where I met
1: my friends uh, Bill Warren and Don, Don Glute who were both involved as writers in, in, in comics and uh, uh, Bill was a, uh, wrote a column for
2: uh, uh, Starlog Magazine for many years mm-hmm. um, but, so we may have been the ones with the Forry connection Mm-hmm. But then, uh, but but he, you know, Shell collected cartoonist
1: contacts, so he had he, he mainly was interested in comic strip guys,
0: right? Yeah. Now I know over the years, and this is related, I suppose, because some of them showed up at the convention, uh, because I've seen the photos. You've done like pilgrimages. You did like pilgrimage out to see Carl Barks and things like that. What, what were those type of trips like?
1: well the thing that Carl Barks had nothing to do with the comic con that was just a
0: bunch of my cartoonist okay but uh we did go to jack kirby's house a few times Mm -hmm. and uh that was where jack decided that he was
1: going to turn some of us into characters for jimmy olsen (laughs) that was that was that was a mind blower for everybody because we certainly didn't expect that and it and then once and then once we knew it was going to happen it didn't happen nearly fast enough for us <laughs> the funniest thing is it, it,
0: Jack put us in there but we don't have names we're just the San Diego 5 string mob and it's obvious he once he did it he was like I gotta get rid of these guys so it's like for the next issue we were all gone <laughs> <laughs> now through your connection with him did you get him for the convention or did he know about it in a different way
1: the, the the first convention was a one day one. Okay. Later that year we had a three day one and that's the one that Jack came to as well as Ray Bradbury. Ah. And uh, so, you know, between between having people like that and the fact that we were in one of the best tourist places in America, a lot of people started coming to come in a Comic Con that from the New York York area because they suddenly realized holy crap I can deduct my I can
2: deduct this whole family vacation as a job expense Mm.
1: and I think that's why I mean you know not only was because Jack had already moved out here but then Neil came out Neil Adams and he gave it a, a glowing review to the people back in New York City and then after that you know Carmine Infantino had to come out. Roy Thomas came out. You know, I mean, it was—it really took off after that.
0: Hmm. Why do you think that is? Is it because of San Diego being kind of a touristy place? Uh, no, that's, that was my point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because I was—I was, I was about that as a kid. It's like, why San Diego? All these guys are in New York. Why not L.A. or San when Francisco? You grow up San Diego, you take San Diego for granted, but San Diego right. was
1: a really great place to live.
0: Yeah. At least you're
1: a middle-class white guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't have any other experience, but I mean, you know, it's, I, I have no idea. But, you know, we weren't well. We, we, we None of us were wealthy. We took the bus to get to places. We didn't have, have any any place to meet for our meetings. We wound up meeting on my parents' patio half the time. And a lot of the time, we would just meet. We'd say, okay, we're going to meet in the west end of the of Balboa Park. And we'd just sit on the grass and have our meetings. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was really done without any. You know, Ken was the guy that was the the voice of reason. He knew how to sign the contracts. Mm-hmm. He knew how to he knew how how to plan for all the different possibilities of something going wrong. Mm-hmm. Mike Mike Towery, who took it over, was a comic dealer, so he had kind of a business mind. Richard Alf, who I would consider, he and and Ken. Uh, as as co-founders as well as Shell he decided to, one day he showed up with a flyer and he listed himself on the flyer that he was the founder
2: <laughs>
1: and I called him out and I said who said you were the founder aren't we all the founders and looking back it was for that first one day con what adult in the right mind would call himself the founder of something that might have been a complete flop
0: yeah it right. makes no sense at all right but he he was he was
1: D- just had his mind on that he that was going to be his, but in history has revealed that he really the only thing he really provided was the fact that he uh, had a lot of uh uh contacts with cartoonists that because he he corresponded with them over the years, mm-hmm. but uh, he was he was very he was very he, he, the sad thing is, is he was really jealous of
0: those of us that did get into the business. Mm really jealous. I mean, insanely jealous. Interesting. Uh, We won't go into that, but but anyway, that's why I'm glad the other two guys get credit for being co-founders now, because they actually did a lot more work than he did. Right. Did any of you, back in the late 60s, early 70s, think that the San Diego Comic Convention would get as big as it's gone now, a half a century later?
1: The one guy that absolutely did was Jack Kirby. Really? Jack, Jack would... Would often say, in fact somewhere there's a long quote about it that, that he, he, he delivered someplace, was that in the future Comic Con where everybody was going to be coming, that would be the source for movies, the comics would be uh, in, in big big, expensive book, coffee table books, and the Comic Con would be the place that would be like the intersection for all forms of entertainment. Hmm. And look what it's become.
0: Yep.
1: <laughs> that's the number one thing that people bitch about.
0: Right. that How big it is? Yeah. Well, I mean, present company included. I have myself. I haven't gone in six years. So uh, I do want to go back at some point, but I just have not. <laughs> so uh, It is an ordeal to a certain degree.
1: I mean, I'm very lucky because they treat me so nicely there that they make it easy for me. Yeah,
0: And I think about that. Like, Mark Evanier will go on Stu's show and and praise how great it is, and it's like, well, yeah, it's great for you because you get to be on all these panels and host things and get behind the scenes, and meanwhile, the rest of us have to slog around in lines, so I'm not really a fan of that too much, but...
1: Uh, well, well you, have, you just have to under, you, I mean, you have to attend smartly. You have to figure out what you want to
0: see at the time. I get it. Mean? Yeah. You know, there... Believe me, being on panels is no big thrill. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's not like oh, oh, I went to Comic Con and I got to be on five panels. <laughs>
2: you know?
1: Well, that just means that you had to, you know, walk through that crowd and then get up there and, and, and be asked three questions while the other 15 people on the panel try to get in what they wanted to say true <laughs> so don't, don't, don't think that it's some sort of exotic wonderful experience to be on panels
0: <laughs> no 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 I'm just saying it's like uh, you know he, he I, I guess what I'm saying is he has a little bit of special treatment be it whatever yeah, it is yeah no, well I yeah. do too yeah you know? so I get it I get yeah, it you but know but I'm old yeah <laughs> so chalk it up to a little bit of jealousy on my part but i'm also happy that you get it so 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 there you go so
1: (laughs) well well you didn't have to put up with shell (laughs) door
0: all right touche (laughs) changing excuse me changing subjects a little bit um how did you get most of your jobs? I mean, this might be a leading question, but uh, I'm just kind of curious. You know, working for, like, Marvel or for, like, being the senior art director at Ogilvy & Mather, which I was going to ask you about, or even designing toys for McFarlane, how, how, did they come to you, or have you sought them out, or both?
1: There's no there's no one, one answer other than I've always been very good being in the right place at the right time, which obviously is something I can't control in the slightest. Right. Um. When I worked in San, when I was lived in San Diego, I I had a full time job that had nothing to do with cartooning. I worked in bookstores or worked in libraries, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um. At least I wanted to be around things I liked, which was books. Right. Um. But uh then I moved to Los Angeles and I wanted to work full time as a cartoonist I had friends that had a, a comic book shop that was about two miles down the street from Hanna-Barbera hmm. uh, so I wound up uh, I said look I'll, I'll can I manage your store but can I have my studio in the back of the store fine so now I had free storage for my collection <laughs> and place to work and it was the same place I was selling comics and it may be the first place ever where you were selling comics at the same address that a comic was once a uh, blank piece of paper on your desk Mm. because I uh, wound up working on uh, a comic called Quack at the time from Mm. Mike Friedrich I'd already been doing underground comics because Ken Kruger. I hired John Pound and I to do some stuff and once people started seeing my stuff I started getting work a little bit in time not enough to live on but certainly enough to be building my career um, but the underground comic stuff was good but when I worked in the comic book shop that's why I began to uh, meet other cartoonists outside of a comic convention that's where I became friends with
0: Roy Thomas, who, was, who had moved to LA at the time.
1: I
2: see. Mm-hmm. So that led to me doing the Man Spider story for Marvel, which led to <laughs> me doing Captain Carrot with Roy for DC. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also meant I was meeting lots
1: of cartoonists from Hanna-Barbera, and none of them hired me, but I, you know, now I had more people. Now I knew kind of how, what, what they were looking for, what to say, what to, how to act. Um, Tried to get into Hanna-Barbera when I was still Living in San Diego and they said We're not doing underground comics you need to Show us some samples of what you actually do With our characters that made sense It never occurred to me Mm -hmm. So um, about the same Time uh, Charlton Comics had worn out its welcome Because uh, they had the Hanna-Barbera license And the foreign Publishers who were reprinting the stuff Hated the work because it was so slipshod Right And so they withdrew the license uh, and granted it to Marvel. And the Marvel hired a fellow out here um, named Chase Craig, who'd been an editor at Western
2: Publishing. Yeah. Turn hired Mark Evanier to write them all for him. Yep. <laughs> and Mark
0: recommended me as
1: a job, right, you know, that I could be a good anchor. Mm-hmm that led to me starting to work in mainstream comic books oh, okay. i was still doing underground comic books and then working on the h&b stuff was great and then that led to the man spider story <laughs> and 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 then uh, i got a call from hanna-barbera because they saw my hanna-barbera comics which were being done through the studio only in his mark and chase craig had offices there but uh you know, maybe they take. You Takamoto would take a look at the her first issues to make sure that everything looked right, and after that point, everything was cool. But they liked the work I was doing. By that time, I was penciling them too, and uh, they called me and asked me if I wanted to work on staff. And I said, "Well, I kind of like freelancing, you know." i <laughs>
2: probably,
1: probably just like. And they said, "Well, we're doing a new Flintstone show." I said, "When do I show up?"
2: Yeah. <laughs> and they actually hired me quite a few.
0: Months before the Flintstone show started, so I actually got trained working on the Godzilla show. Okay. that, that Wilde
2: uh, produced. Mm-hmm. And I'm not very
1: good at doing realistic humans, so I wound up just getting scenes where it was just monsters. <laughs> and, and Doug always referred to me as a Bigfoot cartoonist, being not not the monster Bigfoot, but because back in you know, in the nineteen forties and fifties that's when they referred to guys that did gag cartoons right. and guys with big noses and big feet. Right. I was delighted because I didn't really want to draw those other characters, but monsters, I love drawing, so that was fun.
0: Right. Yeah, they (laughs) referred to anybody who did Harvey Comics as Bigfoot cartoonists, you know, the Casper Richie Rich stuff, so, yeah. Yeah. But
1: anyway, uh, that they kept me around so I could work on The Flintstones and that was a show called The New Fred and Barney Show. That <laughs> uh, a great name, but, you know, I wound up working on working with a lot of the guys that I'd grown up, you know, idolizing and that wound up, you know, one thing led to another uh, that I left for a while to work on Captain Carrot but then came back uh, after I'd been working around the business and wound up uh, being a, produ- a writer and then a producer there. So mm,
0: okay.
1: and it worked out pretty good.
0: So how did the Olga B and Mather thing come about? Was that just in conjunction with Hanna-Barbera? Were you working at both? or
1: No, I after being an H&B and having such short deadlines on stuff and quite honestly not thinking that the work Partic- turned out particularly stellar I thought you know, maybe I'd like working on commercials <laughs> and a couple of times they would en- en- enlist me to do commercials there and I thought maybe that'd be something interesting and then I started getting jobs doing commercials with the Flintstones. and then at some point I called them up and I said, you know oh I know, the art director had just quit and I called them. I'd never studied advertising or art directing, but I said, "I said I can art direct them. Why don't you hire me?" So they did. Wow. But the deal I made was they had to pay me extra because I said, "What is the point of me art directing if I'm not drawing them as well?" Right. I'd already been working on them, uh, drawing them, but I didn't wasn't making any of the decisions. Mm. So suddenly, I'm working there, and I'm working on pebbles and alphabet Serial commercials, and I'm actually wound up pretty much writing them too. Mm-hmm. And after a while, I was writing them, and I was drawing them, and I was voice directing them, and I was pick—you know—I mean, I was oh. doing—I I and I was hiring the studio that took them, and then I was also getting paid extra not only for my work on that stuff, but for doing the box art. And the prizes that came in the cereal, and it was it was just a great job because it was like I finally had the time and the money to make funny Flintstone cartoons. It was yeah, I was selling horrible cereal to children, but it was still it was still such a great gig to be able to make these characters look
0: and act funny the way they actually were supposed to be. Right, because yeah, certainly the animation and the layouts are a lot better than a lot of the later Flintstones TV shows. Maybe the more oh, <laughs> we
1: had more time, and we had, you know, we were shipping out a, a show a week at Hanna
2: Barbera and, and, and Deke and the other studios I worked at. But <laughs> we had we had eight weeks to do a thirty-second commercial with over a hundred thousand dollars. That was more than we got. We had to spend on an entire half hour of a wow. kind of Saturday morning cartoon, so we could make them look good, mm-hmm. and we could do it the animators here, mm-hmm. which meant more better communication
1: Right. and. People who actually knew and loved the Flintstones rather than people who'd never really seen them before. Right. So, I mean, it, it was really a great gig for me.
0: Yeah. I know you hired our mutual buddy, Mike Cazala a few times on, on those commercials shows and things I like that. a few times. Of
1: course, yeah. Mike and I like working together anyway because yeah. he gets it and I get it. He actually animates funny, so... Yeah. You know, I wanted <laughs> people that could take my stuff and make
2: it better. You know, in Saturday morning... <laughs>
1: you have the work up front that's done is pretty good, and then every step it gets worse. Yeah. With with that sort of stuff, as with with feature film, it, hopefully every step it gets better, not 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 deteriorating. And, yeah. and then in that case, it did. I mean, it's it surprises me how many people still know which ones I worked on. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think it looks pretty obvious.
0: Well, they stand well, out. Yeah, they do. <laughs> you know.
1: hand in them. Yeah.
0: Well, who were some other people that you hired just out of curiosity
1: um, Gerard Baldwin directed a few oh, yeah. Sam Cornell did some um um oh the one, the one of the voice things that was really funny I actually I hired uh, I always made sure that if we had Mr. Slate we got John Stevenson if we had Wilma cool. one I got Jean Vander Pyle I think I hired her to do her last her last performance as oh. Wilma but um I, I, I'd get interesting people
2: for sometimes I needed an alien so I got Lorraine Newman yeah.
1: <laughs> I needed we had to have a shark and it was a giant shark and he had a line a funny line the end, only one line and I, I was like well who are we going to get I I wanted to have a, a deep voice but just kind of cool rather than scary uh huh we got Lou Rawls. Oh wow! The voice of shark. One line. Make you go, "Shit, that's Lou Rawls." So, so stuff like that was fun. But I, you know, I've worked with an awful lot of celebrities, so it wasn't really the thing of who I get to hang out with the celebrity as much as. Oh, I get to cast somebody in a part that right.
0: probably is going to be odd on their on their resume, but might get them more work doing this too. You know? Now, um, did that uh, job just did you just get tired of it, or they just wanted to move in a different direction? Is typical?
1: No, what happened was is they uh, uh, they didn't need me anymore because. Uh, uh, Post was divesting themselves Of their children's line because uh. They were having so many problems With parents groups uh, Complaining about us selling stuff To
0: them oh, brother. So
1: when I lo- when they, they, they didn't need me anymore uh, They didn't need me anymore They still did some commercials For a few months but
2: then they turned it over They sold the whole thing to uh, Quaker Oats mm. And that's now when you see ads for Pebble Cereal there's
0: no animation in them at all because they don't have the money to right right okay yeah in fact, in I, fact I barely see serious...
1: why they even spend the money because most kids that's all kids know the Flintstones for now is selling cereal
0: right yeah it's kind of a shame but you know at least I mean you were all excited at least they're bringing it back or brought it back I should say past tense uh, to MeTV you know so at least they're kind of getting on there you know to kind of well, reach them yeah. In. I
1: mean, look, like, those characters, they'll find some way to do them. I, I would love. To, I worked on a show that was so horrible a couple of years ago that they actually uh, only aired it once and then canceled it on Netflix. which was called Yabba Dabba Dinosaurs. Did <laughs> you hear about that?
0: I think I heard the name, and never saw it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it was with Pebbles and Bam Bam. It was. It was kind of a cute idea. I thought Pebbles and Bam Bam kind of being the. Uh, ambassadors or liaisons between the people living in bedrock and the dinosaurs out beyond bedrock Mm. you know weren't domesticated and because they kind of do a lion and you know pull pull thorn out of a a dinosaur's foot kind of thing and that and that was a setup but the problem was some idiot at Warner Brothers decided they would look better if they redesigned them to look like anime characters good. and to make all the dinosaurs look like Pokemon
2: mm. that, that was made as a
1: pilot I never saw it but apparently it flopped mm. and from that point on they decided well the concept's still good so then they did it in that style that I don't know what you call it other than naive. It's yeah. it's that style that makes it look like a child actually drew the cartoon.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know,
1: like those that that Scooby Doo series they did a couple of years ago where it all looked kind of like an underground comic version of Scooby. Right.
0: <laughs> That's weird. And it, I mean, you can look it up. It just looks horrible
1: and. Now I understand Elizabeth Banks, the uh, actor, is is trying to promote getting a, a new lifetime, uh, uh, prime time Flintstones thing going. Hmm. So who knows? Hmm. You know, I mean, those early shows watching on me TV. The one thing that really sticks with me is the stories themselves are no big deal, but. Even in the first season where they're still really figuring out and they are so off-model and so out of whack looking and some of the animation flubs are unbelievable. I mean, that end shot where Wilma's asleep and she doesn't have a mouth, I can't believe they never reshot that. But the fact that they're actually funny lines and likable characters and a lot of the drawings are genuinely funny, which we don't get in TV cartoons anymore... Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it. It makes me very emotional watching those because I realize I wasn't nuts. Those early episodes, especially, are really good. Yes, and uh, you know, of course, they're also extremely uh, non-PC now too. I don't know <laughs> if you can do a show like The Flintstones now.
0: Yeah, but, well, th- well, they've always watered it down. Every later version, seemingly, except for the one. Uh, did you work on that one where? Uh, the one where, uh, the Flintstones on the rocks, the one where no, they... No, I didn't. That was, that was, there was something weird going on with that one, though, because even though it was quite well done, they never aired it again. Right.
1: There was some, some sort of, uh, political issue at the studio.
0: There, there had to have been, because, I mean, it was a, what, it was two hours, I think. Yeah
1: which was way too long it should have been it should have been a mini series. right but um yeah that was well done and uh I knew some of the people that worked on it but I it, they it just seemed like it was born to it was kind of like the John Carter of Cartoon Network <laughs> was, born, was born dead
0: right I managed to get a copy of it so I'm happy to do that because I know it's not a home video but um well you
1: know I, I think I think you know, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't promoted very well. I think they aired it in an afternoon or something, so it's like nobody. I don't think they ever even bothered to find out if people liked it or not. Yeah,
0: I didn't see it when it originally was created. It was years later that I found it. I didn't even know about it actually. So. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, did you work on any I of worked, the...
1: I worked on, I worked on a feature length cartoon that nobody's ever seen. Which that was from Australia. Oh,
0: that's right. That's right.
1: No, no, not no, not the one you're thinking. Oh. no, it was a, uh, it was a feet. It was a uh, like ninety-minute-long cartoon with all of the Kellogg's spokes characters trying to promote um,
0: healthy eating habits. Oh wow! No, I haven't <laughs> heard that. It was with it was Tony the Tiger
1: and Smokey and and and, and uh, Snapcrackle and Pop and. Cornelius the Rooster And all of those characters Mm -hmm. And we had We had We had Slobby Fast food characters Of uh, Two hippo brothers Voiced by Jason Alexander And uh (laughs) Uh The guy that everybody Always thought was me Um
0: no, he was—he was Newman on. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, Wayne Knight. No, yeah. Wayne Knight. yeah, yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. So we did the whole thing. And it was really funny and really weird. And at the, at the
0: last minute, for some reason, the money ran out. And they couldn't do the post-production. Oh geez. So yeah. So
1: so it was done. It was made, but it wasn't made.
0: <laughs> yeah. So how many times has that happened? Because I was—I was referring to that uh, other thing that where the uh, the the animation studio that went out of business. I forgot the name of oh, it.
1: Oh, Hubs Landing. Yeah, that
0: one. You know, so how many yeah, times has that happened in your career where you work on something for a long time and then the carpet's pulled, as it were?
1: That happens all the time in anime,
0: oh, geez. animation.
1: Oh, <laughs> jeez. I worked on another thing that I was convinced was going to change my career, and nobody ever saw it. Uh, when I was a Hanna, producer at Hanna-Barbera, they came to me and they said they needed a sequence for, an, uh, for a film... And it turned out to be a sequence for Steve Martin's movie, Parenthood. Mm. And there was a sequence where he was going to take the kids to one of those matinee cartoons, you know, that they used to have where it'd be some really bad thing made just to kind of, you know, slough off on kids that were forced (laughs) to watch it. And it was a thing called Mr. Bobo Boots. And it was... And, and, and I've never worked on something like this I had Baba Lou Mandel himself Come to see me and he said He had a drawing of Mr. Bobo Boots that somebody had done on a Cocktail napkin And it was it was like a guy's head sticking out Of his pants, it was so screwed up Giant <laughs> it was like a, a, a giant, giant boots It was kind of like Yellow Submarine Drawn by an idiot, you know Those characters <laughs> And And um, it was just horrible, and he said, and I said, well, you want me to fix this, right? And he goes, no, I want you to do it exactly like Oh, right. God. <laughs> <laughs> so I did about a two-minute sequence, and what they wanted, you'd only see it kind of behind what was going on, but they wanted it to be bad and funny enough that they could have, like, cuts to the screen and then cut back to Steve Martin having an argument with his kids while the movie was going. Yeah, And I did... I did... Uh, about three minutes of it, I worked with a couple of animators there. We didn't send it overseas. And, it, it, you know, I mean, for being horrible, at least it was funny looking. Mm-hmm. And and then Ron, I get a message from this guy that I'm working with, who's Ron Howard. Ron, you know, Ron directed it. Mm-hmm. I never met with Ron, but he, they said, Ron loves it. He goes, he wants another two minutes. Here's some more materials, another bit of track. So we did another couple of minutes. And then, then I... I'm telling all my buddies it was it, it, they released it during Comic Con mm-hmm. and people Comic Con are going hey maybe we'll go see, you know people sometimes back then they didn't have as so much to do they go, go to a movie sometimes they go oh go make sure you see Parenthood it's got a sequence I did in there oh okay great they come back and go we didn't see anything in there what are you talking about <laughs> so I called up uh, uh, I forget I, I guess it was Imagine yeah is that the new our company yeah well, that's,
0: that's Howard's company yeah And I called him up,
1: and I I forget the guy's name, but I mean he was younger than me. The the guy that was the liaison. I said, "I said I'm not upset, but I said I I haven't seen the movie, but I hear it's not in there, you know." And it's, and and I know things get all wind up on the, the, you know, editing floor. Mm
2: -hmm. The person who answered the phone at at Imagine said, "I'm
1: sorry, but he's not there." I said, "Well, when's he going to be in?" She says, "I'm sorry, he died."
2: Wow. Wow.
1: they're not trying to keep me and get rid of me. That's a little too extreme. But it's like I never did find an explanation. Apparently, the movie just maybe ran too long, or they
0: right.
1: felt it interrupted the flow. But that was that was a, uh, a shocker too. And I I've never seen. I mean, what we did was completely uh, completely uh, uh, produced. So they must have never shot the live action because I've actually. Bought it a couple of times on you know
0: home video, thinking oh they'll have spliced it back in, right, or at least have it as an extra or an outtake or something, yeah,
1: yeah, something <laughs> like that, like huh. that incredibly great you know they've, they've they've got the actually the original
0: ending for Little Shop of Horrors on the Blu-ray, right, right,
1: <laughs> where the monsters win,
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> um... Another one I was thinking of, and you talked about it on Stu's show, didn't you? Do like a um, uh, treatment or character uh, designs for Clash, uh, Clyde Crash Cup?
1: Oh, I did a presentation. Yeah, for that's what Crash Cup cartoon
0: yeah. show. yes yeah. So and they only showed the, the only showed it once to Fox, and as far as I know, it's still in somebody's closet. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, I guess
1: spent a lot of time and money on that but no orange paint.
0: Wow. (laughs) It's too bad you can't retrieve...
1: I was told, told, you can't use any orange because Janice doesn't like orange. (laughs) And I remember, because I was writing it too, I said, how about letters? Are there any letters I'm not supposed to use?
0: (laughs) It's too bad you can't retrieve these projects back. I mean, I know you don't have any rights to it, but I mean, just to have copies of it, you know, it seems like they just kind of go into this limbo of nowhere. I probably have copies of everything I've ever done, but it's all in a storage space in oh. Bakersfield. Oh,
1: <laughs> I mean, look. After forty-seven years of this, I I don't throw stuff out, but oh. I can't have it sitting around. I did have right. a studio that was full of it. And now I finally, I got a different house. I had to put it in storage, but
0: right. You know, i I I'm just whoever wants to go out to Bakersfield and go go through stuff with me is more than happy to come out. <laughs> Whoever hears this, let me know. <laughs> All right.
1: <laughs> I, had, I had some some guy that I think I don't know, he may he must have had more money than since. He was buying old storyboards for I forget how many uh, he was paying like a hundred, two hundred dollars a box for Xeroxes and stuff. Wow. Yeah, I was I was making some some storage money on that.
0: Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, um Let's see. Let's kind of finish up here with uh, you, you know what you're currently working on. Aren't you doing some children's books and things like that?
1: I am actually inking as we speak. I'm working on a sequel to Maroon Lagoon, which was a book I did two years ago. And this is called Maroon Lagoon 2. It kind of ties, ties up uh, elements of the story. It's a 76-page picture book. Comes with a razor, so when your child you start reading it to a child, he can actually be shaving by the time you get to the end of it. I'm also working on uh, on and off. It's it's out there, but I, I, I we're going to be adding things to it. A, a video game based on the Garbage Pail Kids cards, which I worked on back in the 90s, I think. Cool. But anyway, there's this new video game called uh, Garbage Pail Kids: The Game exciting and uh i'm also uh, finishing up my book on oddball comics which will be out next summer from tomorrow's which is a fine publisher of books about the comic book business mm-hmm. and my book is called scott shaw's oddball comics 200 pages of the craziest comic books you ever ever got published and uh i uh every one of them you look at and you go how the hell did this get published
2: right <laughs> uh,
1: it, 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 it's, it's enjoyable it's not your average book on the history of funny books I'll tell you yeah
0: I'm looking forward to that one especially
1: yeah well I'm hoping to get it done soon
0: so well, and I'm also looking forward no pressure but uh, uh, to, you're illustrating the cover to my monkeys book with Michael Ventrella so um
1: That's right, I'm looking forward to to doing that too because uh, I like drawing stuff
0: it's completely in my own style like that Right, and you did a you know, great I, cover I want to give you kudos again On the first Monkeys book that Michael and I did You know, you did a la Mad, 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 Mad World And, you know, you went above and beyond the Call of Duty So I will give you total kudos for that
1: <laughs> okay. Well, that, that's, that, that's almost as good as money Yes <laughs> uh, I'm surprised you didn't get Jose Delbo to do it <laughs>
0: I had to get the guy that at least worked for Rhino Records, which we didn't even talk about, but, you know.
1: So. Yeah, I, yeah I, I used to do a lot of good stuff for Rhino. Yeah. That
0: was a fun day. So, um, you, we've talked about your current projects. Uh, if anybody wants to get in contact you or see you on the internet or anything else, uh, give us some plugs. Oh,
1: yeah, well, I, I look for me on, at uh, 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 I also have... Uh, a portfolio page on Facebook And I, oh, by the way in On uh, November 10th I'll be appearing, uh, that's a Sunday I believe, I'll be a special guest In pa- Pasadena's uh, TuneCon, which mm-hmm. is all about Cartoons from the 80s and 90s I'll be uh, Doing drawings and, and Selling all kinds of cool stuff As well as being on a panel called The Worst Cartoon I Ever Worked On <laughs>
0: Okay, I will try to get this on. That
1: that will be a seven-hour show.
0: I will try to get this uploaded before that time. So, (laughs) (laughs) and I appreciate you, Scott, being a guest and being my friend all these years, and uh, working with me and uh, listening to my nonsense fanboy talk to you. (laughs) All that stuff. Always
1: always enjoyable, Mark.
0: All right, I thank you very much, and I will talk to you soon. Okay, thanks a lot. Have a good day. Thank you for listening, and thank you again, Scott Shaw, for being my special guest. Episode number 47 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas Podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner, Goldfarb, and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2019 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you very much and have a good night.
1: pills in the pink electric church, the final slicker of your lose.